our great God and Heavenly Father, thanks for the Bible that you speak to us. Thank you that you speak clearly, that you show us your Son as we meet Him in the Scriptures. Please do open our eyes that we'd see Him more clearly. Through Him, Amen. Now, is Jesus really the Lord God come to save and judge? Yeah, Mark began the first half of chapter 1. He made massive claims about Jesus. Jesus is the uniquely pleasing one to God in heaven. Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Lord Yahweh come after his messenger. Each of those is enormous. Each of them is easy to claim. None of them are easy to fake. Uh, Least of all, the claim that Jesus is the Lord God come to save and to judge. So is that who Jesus really is? Does it fit with what happens? Does it fit with what Jesus did as he preached and healed? Does it fit with Jesus confronting controversy? How do you think about that as we read today? So in verse 16 of chapter 1, we see Jesus walking along the side of the Sea of Galilee. He sees two fishermen and says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they leave their livelihoods and follow Jesus. And he immediately sees two more fishermen. They're busy mending their nets. uh, They're partners in their father's business. But when Jesus says follow, they leave and follow. Mark tells us a little more about these guys other than the four disciples' names, Simon and Andrew and James and John. We don't hear why they follow. There was readers who have just heard Jesus introduced as the Lord God come to save and rescue and deliver. Well, it makes sense to see them prioritize following Jesus over their possessions and their family and their business. They follow. In verse 21, they enter Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue. Yes, immediately is one of Mark's favorite works. Words, he just wants to keep things moving. Well, they go into the synagogue where the Jews gathered to hear the Bible, the Old Testament read, and to hear it taught. And Jesus is doing the teaching. And the people are astonished at the authority that he assumes. See, the scribes taught and they, they teach with a long list of people who thought what they thought. You, know, you can believe me what, what I'm saying because Rabbi 1 said it, and so did Rabbi 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, so you can believe what I say. But Jesus just taught. Absolutely confident in what he said. Uh, no footnotes necessary. Now, while he's teaching, and while the people are astonished at the authority with which he teaches, we see that there's a man with an unclean spirit in their synagogue. And he cries out, what have you to do with us? Verse 24, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the spirit is unclean, Jesus is holy, and he fears that the Holy One has come to destroy him and others. Now, there were well-established um, protocols for exorcism, but Jesus skips all the magic. He ignores all the ceremony. He doesn't even call on God in heaven to act. He simply says to the unclean spirit, Be silent and come out of him. And it is so. 
the people in the synagogue, they're amazed at what Jesus taught with, when, he, when he taught with authority. Now, they are amazed with a, with, a, with a sort of a confusion when they see his authority over the unclean spirit. And the news travels. Now, we, we can wonder what they made of it. How did they try to put it together without the benefit of chapter 1 to help them understand what was going on? But we see where it fits as we read through Mark. If Jesus is Lord and God, well, then we'd expect him to teach as one who has all authority. If Jesus is Lord and God, then we'd expect an unclean spirit to have no option other than to obey his voice. Verse 29. Next little story, still Sabbath. Uh, They find Simon's mother-in-law in bed with a fever, and Jesus heals her. Uh, She doesn't take days to recover from bed-ridden exhaustion, back to normal activity. It reads like Jesus got her up and immediately she's serving them. She's just back to to, to normal. Jesus healed the disease completely and instantly. Now, Sabbath ended at sundown and that's when the crowds began to gather. Uh, people who had friends or relatives who were sick or demon-possessed, they, they brought them, and it sounds like the rest of the, of the city was there just to see what would happen. And Jesus healed. He healed all the sick. He cast out all the demons. He didn't let the demons speak. And you're right there to wonder, why doesn't he let them speak? Just file it for now. Uh, it'll make more sense as we read on. But don't miss the obvious thing. Jesus has authority over demons and disease. It's the authority we'd expect the Lord God to have when he comes among his people. Verse 35, Jesus, um, sorry, Mark shows us Jesus uh, getting up while the rest sleep. He goes out to pray in the wilderness. Now, it's important to say this, to understand who Jesus is in relation to his father. See, Mark is showing us Jesus as the Lord Yahweh coming after his messenger who prepared his way. We've heard the Lord Yahweh, his Father in heaven, speak to him at his baptism. Now we see Jesus speaking to his Father in heaven. Mark's showing us Jesus act as uh, with divine authority because that's who he is. But at the very same time, Jesus is in relationship with his Father in heaven. They're not the same person. Jesus is praying. Meanwhile, the, the crowd in Capernaum, they're looking for him. Uh, Simon and the other disciples, they're the ones who find him. They suggest that he comes back to the city. And Jesus says, verse 38, let's go to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that's why I came out. And verse, next, next verse, reruns. All around Galilee. Uh, everywhere he preached with authority in their synagogues, everywhere he commanded, come out, and the demons came out. They obeyed his voice. Then in verse 40, a leper comes to him. Now, leprosy defined this man as unclean. Uh, He usually spent his days at a distance from everyone. Uh, They saw him as as really among the living dead. Uh, he He had to call out, unclean, unclean, while they were at a distance so that they would know not to come near. And they didn't want to come near because if they touched him, then instantly they'd be unclean too. They might get sick, but they'd definitely get unclean. 
that definitely need ritual ritual purification before they could enter the temple again. And he could never enter the temple. He couldn't come near it. He couldn't come near anyone. But he comes to Jesus. Urgently and humbly he asks Jesus to act. He's not presuming Jesus is willing, but he is confident that Jesus could act. And Jesus is more than willing. He cares. He's moved by pity and compassion and concern. He touches the leper and says, be clean. The cleanness of the Holy One of God overcomes the uncleanness of the leper. He speaks and it is so. Immediately the leprosy left the man and he was made clean. Then Jesus says to the man, say nothing to anyone. Go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You can read Leviticus chapter 14 to to see the ceremony. It's a ceremony designed not to cure and make claim, but to acknowledge that a cure has already happened. That's what Jesus sent him to do. Now, one writer uh, mentions uh, some high-profile leprosy cures in the Old Testament. He summarizes the contrast with what Jesus did. Should be on a slide. Whereas Moses had to cry out to God for Miriam, Elisha refrained from physical contact with Naaman, and the priest could only pronounce on the cure, not bring a cure. Jesus, by his own word and touch, effects it. He makes it happen. Thereby transcending, being above Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet, and the priesthood. So all this, it fits with what Mark has been showing us about Jesus. Jesus is the holy God come among us. In him, God's promised intervention on behalf of his people has begun. So the law could only declare clean after the fact. Moses could only cry to God for God to bring the cure. Elijah stayed at a distance. But the Lord Jesus touched and made the unclean clean. He spoke, be clean, and it was so. But he also spoke, say nothing. And it was not so. Verse 45, that cured leper disobeyed. He spoke freely. He preached the news as he saw it. Uh, Interest in Jesus as a miracle worker built. The crowds came until Jesus couldn't go into any town publicly. Is Jesus really the Lord God come to save and judge? Well, I think the evidence so far fits. (laughs) The Lord God speaks as one who has authority. The Lord God speaks, and it is so. Jesus speaks as one who has authority. He speaks, and it is so. Mark helps us to see Jesus more clearly. He's also showing us how people respond to him. Uh, We've seen immediate and costly obedience, those first disciples, We've also seen outright disobedience at the end of the chapter. 
I take it Mark shows us them so we'll see ourselves. Are you more like the obedient in this story or more like the disobedient? The cured leper's disobedience is obviously outrageous. He disobeys the one who commands demons and disease. He disobeys the one who cured him. His disobedience lifts the lid on how outrageous it is for any of us to disobey Jesus. But he's not the only one who disobeys. He's not the only one who's resisting Jesus. The rest of the section we're looking at today is full of controversy and rejection and opposition. Five stories of opposition to Jesus. Controversy. So the cured, the cured lepers preaching had people thinking about Jesus as the one with the cure for sickness. And Jesus had to stay away. But then finally, um, start of chapter 2, Jesus came to preach. Uh, he left Capernaum to do it elsewhere. Then beginning of chapter 2, he's back in town. He's inside a house. He's preaching. The room is packed full. As a fact, it's packed out through the doors. Jesus speaking his news But it seems people are still coming because of the leper's news. Verse 3, they come. uh, Four men carrying a paralyzed man. The only way they can see that they could get to Jesus is to go uh, up the outside stairs at the back of the house onto the flat roof and to dig through the roof. Unorthodox but effective. They make their way in. They dig through the roof until there's enough room to lower the paralyzed man down in the pallet he's, he's lying on. Jesus knows what they're hoping for. We know what all five of them are hoping for. A paralyzed man on the ground beside the man who cured Peter's mother-in-law and countless others when he was last in town. The paralyzed man looking up at Jesus who healed men, women, and children all around Galilee. Everyone knows what he's hoping for. The hole in the roof screams their confidence that Jesus can do it. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. As a first read, you wouldn't expect him to say that. And the scribes in the room didn't approve of him saying that. They're thinking, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, yeah, they're right, God alone. They're not wrong about that. God proclaimed his defining identity to Moses. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who God is. The Lord God comforted his people through Isaiah. Remember chapter 40 last week? Chapter 43, this is from. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Yes, the Lord God alone forgives sins. So the scribes hear Jesus speaking forgiveness, and they think blasphemy. A mere human claiming he's done what God alone does. But the Lord Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier? To say they're paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
Now, healing can be seen, healing can be seen, forgiveness can't be seen. It's easy enough to claim someone is forgiven. There's no visible evidence to confirm or deny that what you've said is, has just happened. It's not so easy to claim that you've just healed a paralyzed man who's lying in front of you. People can see whether you've done it or not. But when it comes down to it, God alone can do well, either of them. God alone speaks forgiveness, and it is so. God alone speaks healing, and it is so. Scripture are right, only God can give forgiveness. But what Jesus is pressing home is that only God can speak healing. Only God can then heal to prove it. And Jesus heals to prove it. He speaks healing and it is so. The until then paralyzed man gets up, picks up his bed and walks out. The crowd are amazed. They glorify God saying we've never seen anything like this. Just in another reason to be convinced that Jesus truly is the Lord God come to save and to judge. Mark doesn't tell us what the scribes made of it. Verse 13 uh, he takes us beside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus sees Levi sitting in his tax booth. He says to Levi, um, follow me. And just like the other four, Levi is up and following. At Levi's house, they faced, and they faced with many tax collectors and sinners who were also following Jesus. Now, some scribes who were also Pharisees, they say it. And they ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, tax collectors, they, they collected taxes uh, on behalf of the, the Romans or maybe their puppet, Herod. Uh, their profit was the difference between what they were required to collect and what they actually demanded. Uh, so that they really were leeching off their own people. They got rich by collecting more. Uh, the sinners, well, by def- definition, they're the ones who have rejected God's law. Uh, They're preferring their instincts to God's instruction. And the Pharisees' issue with Jesus is that they think that by eating with tax collectors and sinners, he is accepting them, and that by accepting them, he is approving of them. Listen to what Jesus says. He's at a table surrounded by some of the most wealthy people in the city. I'm guessing they're healthy too. But he says, they're actually the sick ones. As sick as the paralyzed man whose biggest need Jesus met. He he met it not by saying, pick up your bed and go home, but by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisee scribes, they think his acceptance implies approval, but Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's calling them sinners. He's saying they're not righteous. But he's accepting them without approving. He's saying they're unrighteous sinners, but that's who he came for. Sin is their sickness and he came to cure it. He came to forgive. He came to say, repent and believe in the gospel. See, the Pharisees, they saw themselves as spiritual health care professionals. They could guide anyone towards perfect performance, at least in their own minds. Jesus, he's a sick care professional. And sin is a great sickness. 
He brings forgiveness. Jesus' words here, they focus our understanding of what Jesus came to do. This is why he didn't want the cleansed leper running around everyone, everywhere promoting him as the Jesus heals sickness. Christ. This is why he preferred preaching to healing. He came to forgive. That's why Christians from the earliest days have known themselves forgiven and been quick to accept without approving others who need the same forgiveness. Mark moves on. The next controversy, verse 18. The people ask Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Every pious person skips meals. Why don't your people do it? Jesus says, well, it's not the right time. Wedding guests, they can fast when the bridegroom is with them. It's time to feast while he's here. When he's taken away, that's the time to fast. Disciples don't fast because Jesus is with them. Uh, Jesus gives uh, two little pictures uh, to help think about this. Um, one is um, yeah, cloth and wine. Uh, new cloth was not pre-shrunk. Uh, washing and drying it shrunk the cloth to begin uh, slightly larger and then, and then shrink down. An unshrunk cloth patch sewn onto an old cloth already shrunk piece of clothing. Well, when it's washed and dried, the patch would shrink and there'd just be a bigger hole than what was there to start with. Uh, new wine, it wasn't fully fermented. It produces, produ- continued to produce carbon dioxide. It stretched the, the wineskin bottles that it was sealed up in. So no one put new wine into old wineskins because the brittle old leather, well, it had no stretch left. It would crack and split, and the wine would pour out. See, Jesus is illustrating that who he is, that, that, that his message, the message he speaks, they, it can't just be merged into Old Testament Judaism. To put them together, well, it's going to do damage. The old garment of Judaism will be destroyed. The new wine of the gospel will be lost. Jesus has brought something new and fresh which requires new ways. It won't be just like what came before. Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, but his coming was a turning point. Following him, it won't be the same as Old Testament Judaism. There will be points where it's similar and points where it's different. Again, we don't hear how they reacted. The last two controversies happen on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are walking through grain fields, and his disciples are taking taking advantage of the bits of the the grain that have been left behind for travelers uh, and foreigners. Uh, They're picking some and eating it. Well, the Pharisees, though, they say that, yeah, picking it, plucking it, well, that's harvesting. Uh, And harvesting is work. So they're doing something which is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus asks his Bible-obsessed readers, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? 
His point here is that King David did something the letter of the law forbade. He did it in order to feed himself and his hungry men. But God didn't judge him. God didn't judge him for doing it. So by implication, David didn't break the law when he did that. Jesus saying the Sabbath is the same. It's another law which is made for people. People aren't made for the law. Sabbath wasn't created for its own sake. It was a gift from God for human thriving. It's not a random requirement. It's a gift to ensure we humans take the rest God has designed us to take. Designed us to need. It's for humans, but verse 28, again, Jesus, the Son of Man, He's Lord of the Sabbath. He somehow sits over it. He has authority to say what keeping the Sabbath involves. So that, that fits again with what we've seen of Him. It helps us see Him more clearly. He fulfills the Old Testament and He is our best guide to reading it. He reveals what's the same. He reveals what's different. We don't see the Pharisees' reaction just yet. It's still Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue. Uh, the same one where he cast out the unclean spirit uh, weeks ago uh, on another Sabbath. Uh, this time, there's a man with a withered hand there, a paralyzed hand. And they watch. Uh, they don't watch to see if Jesus can heal. They already know Jesus can heal. Verse 2, they watch to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse them. I guess that's, sorry, so, so that they might accuse him. I guess that's their reaction. In their minds, it was only okay for a doctor to attempt a cure on the Sabbath if the patient was about to die. So this man's hand, it should wait. The man with the unclean spirit, uh, weeks ago, he could have waited. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law, she could have waited. Um, but this time, they're, they are available to be eyewitnesses. They're available to be eyewitnesses to see if Jesus does it, and if he does it, to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus exposes them as bureaucratic legalists. And that they care more, care more about their interpretation of the law than they care about people. He calls the man over. He says to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? They say nothing. Now, I think it's, we can safely assume that Jesus' pity and concern and compassion for this man matches his pity, concern, and compassion for the leper. But what Mark mentions here is Jesus' anger, his grief, and sorrow at their hardness of heart. He says to the man, stretch out your hands. And it is so. The man stretches out his healed hand. This time we see their reaction. The Pharisees didn't like seeing Jesus save life on the Sabbath. So they spent the rest of Sabbath planning to kill him. 
They met with the Herodians who they hated because of their contact uh, with, with Gentiles. And they plotted how they could destroy Jesus, who they hated even more. Is Jesus really the Lord God come to save and judge? Absolutely. Mark wants us to see Jesus more clearly. To see his absolute authority when he speaks. His authority over demons and disease. His clarity about what is truly good. His anger about hard-heartedness. His compassion and care for those who suffer. His willingness uh, to accept sinners. His capacity to accept without approving. Mark wants us to see Jesus' priority on forgiveness. He wants you to see Jesus as Lord and God come to save and to judge. Not as some fiction, but as the explanation of what happened in history. He wants you to see that it's actually true. He wants you to see how outrageously out of step with reality, how outrageously out of step with righteousness, it would be to do anything other than to obey him. Now, we haven't seen a whole lot of what it means to obey Jesus. I haven't seen a whole lot of what is involved in following Jesus just yet. But we have seen that he's worthy. That would be outrageous to disobey. That would be a disaster to cling to old ways. That we can only expect him to judge if we reject him. Without doubt, those who choose to follow Jesus are choosing the better path. It's best for us and it's best for others. Jesus is the Lord God come to save and judge. It's outrageous to disobey and choosing to follow him is by far the best path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do show us your Son, that as we see him, we see you more clearly. Father, we praise the Lord Jesus as the one who does have absolute authority as he speaks and as he commands. He knows what's truly good and reveals it who responds in righteous anger to hard-heartedness and in compassion to those who suffer, who in grace and mercy and kindness accepts sinners without approving, accepts by bringing complete forgiveness. Father, please do continue to grow with the clarity with, with which we see your Son. Please grow the the clarity with, with which we see how outrageous it is to distrust him or to disobey him.
please keep that clarity in our heads and hearts Monday to Sunday as we live before him and before you as we speak about him to those around us. It's in him that we pray. Amen.